Hello and welcome to Army of Crime podcast, a critical sailing through the world of comic and film. We try and hunt down everything that we can here. Uh, this week we're actually looking at sci-fi comic Planetary by Warren Ellis and Soviet propaganda created by classic filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein. I am your host, Matt, and my co-host and the producer, Dustin, is here with me. Hello, everyone. I believe we're going to start with Planetary by Warren Ellis, which is considered a classic of the now defunct, now less defunct Wildstorm imprint, and you can buy a very handsome omnibus that has the whole thing off of Amazon. Let's get to it. Planetary is a sci-fi comic written by Warren Ellis, comes out of the Wildstorm imprint with art by John Cassidy. Do you have any thoughts on Planetary you would like to share? It is considered I bl- it's considered one of Warren Ellis's best works, and of course Warren Ellis has written a lot of tremendous things. And it is it is somewhat unique, I think. Um what are you, what are your thoughts on Planetary? I enjoyed uh Planetary. Um you know, it took me a little while, maybe, like I read the four volumes, and uh, it took me a little while to get into it because, you know, it, it does this sort of odd thing where each issue is extremely standalone, like very intentionally. It sort of like hops around between genres and between styles, especially visually. So at first, and I'm not always a huge fan also of um, Warren Ellis's weird sense of humor. Like, the, I think the very first thing in the joke in the comic is a joke about uh, a dog peeing in someone's coffee, which Very is classy, fine. which is fine, whatever, I guess. That stuff doesn't always work for me. And then I, so and, and towards the beginning, I was kind of wondering, like, is this all going to um, come together? into something or is it just going to be like these little standalone adventures it does come together pretty well i thought by the end so i mean i i don't know that i would say that this is like an all-time great comic to me and maybe but i yeah i thought it was really good i enjoyed it i know that he is pretty like well acclaimed as well alongside warren ellis but i don't know that i'm necessarily like a huge john Cassidy fan. He does sort of adapt the visual look of the of the comic depending upon like what they're doing and where they're at and what like genre they're sort of paying homage to, which is fun. But I overall I guess I um not necessarily the world's biggest John Cassidy fan, but I don't know. I, I guess it's find myself kind of like trying to think of things to like nitpick because overall um, yeah, it is really good. I mean, it lives up to the reputation, right? Yeah, so if you were to describe the premise to me, I would be skeptical because I think uh, there's this genre smash-up kind of conceit and you get Nazis riding Tyrannosaurus Rexes or pirates traveling through time or something and it sometimes seems like random things pushed together just for the sake of novelty. And if you were to just describe the kind of stuff that happens in Planetary, because there's references here to Hong Kong action movies. Uh, there's all sorts of Marvel and DC characters represented. There's stuff about Japanese death cults. There's Cold War story. There's references, 50s monster movies, 
uh, Tarzan, Fu Manchu, I mean, just all kinds of things. It actually managed to layer it in very well, so it's not like overwhelming weirdness, right? It's not like all kinds of stuff coming at you just for the sake of throwing everything at the wall. And I think part of that is you mentioned the standalone stories. It's an interesting structure because with comics, we're used to getting one-sixth or like one-twelfth of a story at a time. And this is kind of a push in the opposite direction because you're getting a complete story almost in every issue. Right. And like you said, the concern there is that you're getting a bunch of standalones and it never turns into anything. And he manages to do both. You get a bunch of standalone stories. You get an issue that's a kung fu movie. And there's an issue that's a take on 80s Vertigo characters that has John Constantine in it, basically. But then you right. also have an overall storyline that has a take. The overall storyline has a take on the Fantastic Four crossed over with the new gods as far as i could tell so there's a lot going on but i think it is a cohesive whole i don't know i really i really like planetary i think it really works i think it's a really interesting concept to do a team book right because it's it's kind of a weird thing about comic books there's a team there's a team book and that's like a it's like a genre in and of itself with its own type of conventions and he basically just throws most of the conventions out the window because you basically start you just have these people and they're on a team and they go do stuff there's no like you don't spend the first five issues learning of how they all know each other or whatever. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, I guess, now that, that you mentioned that, it, it's interesting that he sort of casts the archetypal, not the original, but sort of what kind of became like the uh, gold standard of the comic book superhero team, the Fantastic Four, as the villain i'm not sure if there if if that was meant to be some kind of like meta commentary or if that just like was like a good plot way to like slide that into the plot i don't know if that... yeah there's a lot of meta stuff going on here right because he has i mean he has like i said there's a issue about 80s vertigo characters with it has john constantine and i and like spider jerusalem is referenced He's yeah another warren ellis character there's like versions of all sorts of different Marvel DC things. I'm not sure if there's a commentary there. I don't know if there really is. I feel like he's just using everything because you also have um, Doc Savage and the pulp characters. There's a take on the spider. There's reference to like the Lone Ranger. It's just kind of like everything in there, put everything in the blender. And, and you know, the, the fear then is that it turns into, like I said, Nazis riding Tyrannosaurus Rexes in outer space or whatever. But it never it never turns into that, where it's just like weirdness for the sake of weirdness. Yeah, I, I think that it, it does kind of cohere into a whole. And I, I don't know, it, it's interesting because as it's all like um, wrapping up, I don't know if, is he, uh, are they saying some kind of like larger thing about like the, you know, the way that, nostalgia works and the way that people like latch on to these you know all these older like characters and stuff or is it like you said literally just like you know putting everything all of like pop culture into a blender and then this is what comes out do you think or i don't know if there is a a larger commentary there seems to be some kind of commentary about the world as like a plutocracy versus, you know, like well-meaning people because planetary represents people and they're trying to actually at least put good things forward. They're trying to explore and learn about the world by contrast are just sort of there to hoard everything. So there is a, probably a larger message 
you know, about how we should like look at the world. Um, I don't know if there's really a commentary on all those different characters, you know, like, is he trying to tell us something about Tarzan? I guess he tells us that Tarzan is sort of racist, but that's a that's pretty low hanging fruit. Yeah, that seems like fairly obvious, I guess. You know, like some of it, like I said, like the drummer, like having a character just called the drummer. I, I don't know, some of it like seemed a little too clever by half. But um, then he actually gives you like that character story and it kind of works. Um, so I feel like by, like I said, kind of like by the end of it, all of my quibbles were sort of like uh, addressed and cleared up. Um, so I think even though it does work, like you said, largely, especially towards the beginning, it's all these like standalone stories and standalone issues. I think it does work better overall as like a whole, I guess. When you read all four volumes together, you really get the proper scope of the thing. If that makes right. sense. Yeah, you could just read individual issues and you would basically have a beginning, middle, and end inside most of the issues, but it does work better. Yeah, it does turn into a whole, and the whole is better than the sum of its parts. I think it's interesting. It's a very cinematic thing, right? There are some issues where they do long series of captions. I think for the most part, it's there's issues that are, have no captions that have very little dialogue. I think it's, it is trying to come up with a very cinematic style. It actually reminded me of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen would be a comparison. Was the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen before or after this? It must have been right around the same time. I believe League of Extraordinary Gentlemen came out after. Okay. But I, they're both takes on the sort of shared universe thing, which goes back much yeah. further. Right. Since you're more of a Warren Ellis fan than I am. Is this like his best work or where where would you put it? I don't know if it's his best work. I would put it up there. I think it's I think it's pretty 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 great. I really don't have anything any complaints about it. I would put it up there. I mean I, I think it's I think it's basically a perfect kind of science fiction story. Again, it's a very comic book specific thing, but if you talk about like the science fiction team up or something, the science fiction team I think it's basically a perfect example of that. Yeah, like the challengers of the unknown or, you know, like obviously the Fantastic Four is uh, pretty heavily referenced throughout. Just looked it up. Planetary and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen both came out in 1999. Oh, okay. So there was just something in the water. Just in the ether, yeah. So, yeah, what did you think of John Cassidy's part of this? I thought the art was great. I guess I really didn't have any complaints about the art. I thought it was great. He he switches genres very well. You get the sci-fi things. You have these very intricate, like, detailed traveling ships and some, like, the artifacts and stuff like that. And you see these different kinds of alien worlds. I think he does a great job of being able to shift genres like that. I have no complaints about the art. I really have no complaints about anything about Planetary. I feel like that what they're going for here visually is sort of like a J.H. Williams III sort of thing, where... It looks like, you know, the, the style of the book changes depending upon what genre they're referencing or attempting to play around in, right? And I think some of that is really effective, and I feel like some of it, um, I can't think of any specific examples, but sometimes I feel like the attempts to shift the visual style don't seem to really uh, be all that noticeable. And I'm, I don't know, maybe that's just me expecting, like, you know, the the moon and the stars from everything. Well, I think there's something to be said for having a shift in style, but also have a consistent style overall. Right. Like, yeah. Like they're, they're little shifts. So you're still you're still getting 
an overall consistent style, even though you're getting also different things inside each one. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's not like it's attempting to be an entirely different comic book because it still has to play into that whole uh, overarching story that comes together by the end. Um, right. If you wanted that, you'd have a different artist every issue, which you could do. Yeah. There are comics that have done that. I'll give you the last word on Planetary since I said it was basically perfect, which doesn't leave a lot of extra room. Yeah, I don't think that I would say it's basically perfect. I did like it a lot, especially, um, like I said, it really comes together really strong in the end. I feel like some of the early issues were um, like maybe less successful since it's kind of like trying to hop around so much and do so much that sometimes the early issues were more hit or miss for me and i also feel like this is kind of a warren ellis thing but the characters and the dialogue would sometimes lean on the side of being like a little too glib and a little too clever for itself and maybe that's just my own weird thing and you know like i said i'm not probably the world's biggest uh john cassidy fan because i feel like his best known art i think kind of exemplifies that sort of like really popular really professional looking like superhero style comic book art you know like he's most well known i think well probably for this but then also for a run on the x-men that he did again which is good but maybe just my own personal uh preference you know i've been reading a lot of like carl barks and stuff lately so you know the uh so you want there to be ducks i want there to be ducks i want everyone to be like three feet tall cartoon ducks. Um, it is one genre that did not get included in Planetary. That's true of the funny animal books. Maybe there'll be a sequel with like Donald Duck and Crazy Cat and Pogo. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm just like finding things to quibble with because I do think overall Planetary is really good. I mean, it's it's a really highly acclaimed book, so it's like it, it lives up to the hype. I dug it. Next, we are going to talk about the 1938 Soviet film Alexander Nevsky, which depicts the attempted invasion uh, of Russia in the 13th century by some German knights of the Holy Roman Empire. And this was made pretty explicitly as a work of propaganda uh, by the Stalinist regime in Russia at the time and made to depict and to rile up anti-German sentiments uh, as a war between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union seemed to be inevitable. So watching this film now, and it's also worth mentioning with that political context, that it was co-written and co-directed by the great Soviet filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein, who had gotten in trouble with the regime for straying too far into quote-unquote formalism and away from the necessary required tenets of socialist realism. So he was assigned a co-writer and a co-director on this film to make sure he wouldn't get out of line. So anyway, with that, watching this propaganda film now, Matt, did you find anything to like about it? It is considered a cinema classic, even outside of you know, it's work as like a piece of propaganda. So do you feel like it uh, holds up? I would say that it definitely does. 
I really didn't know what to expect going into it. I have not seen a lot of Soviet films. And it starts out, I believe, in a very simplistic way. They're standing in a field, and there's actually the Mongols there talking to Alexander Nevsky, who I can't help but notice looks a lot like Jesus. And I don't know if that makes sense or not, given the time and place that it was made. I'm going to guess probably not, because... The film has a pretty explicitly anti-church, anti-religion, anti-clerical message, um, which we can get into a little bit later with the uh, German characters. Um, my thought actually was that Alexander Nevsky was, I mean, obviously Alexander Nevsky was a real person, and he really did fight these German knights. Um, but yeah, the decisions made to depict him, um, I mean, the way that his character was written reminded me that they were, I guess we were meant to think that he was Joseph Stalin. I actually thought of the Roman general Cincinnatus from Roman myth of the guy who is a simple farmer who, in a sense of patriotism, when asked to do so, saves his country. And then when he's done, he sort of shrugs his shoulders and goes back to doing what he was doing before. Yeah, there is. That could, I, I could see that as well. There is a, a sense of that in this, that he uh, begins the film as a fisherman and then feels called to duty for patriotic reasons to defend the country. I thought it was a good movie. I was sold, the part I was sold at, when I was sold, when I was like, yes, I am on board with this, is when they're calling the Russian people to fight against the Germans, and you see, like, the peasants assembling, and some of them, the way it's staged, it literally looks like they're crawling out of the ground. Yes. It's just like the very ground itself is, like, rising up to defend Russia. There's a there's almost like a fantasy element to some of the parts like that and also the design on the German knights. I think we can safely assume German knights did not go into battle with such grandiose costumes. Those two things also, I, the two things I loved about this film, yeah, that shot you mentioned, it, it's like the, the peasants are like answering the call to defend Russia and it does, the way it's framed, it does appear that they're like coming out from under the earth as if like, you know, the, the country of Russia itself, like, as you said, is rising up to defend the people, you know, like the people are being spit out from the earth to stop the Germans. I think for me, the moment where I felt like I really got into it was when you first see the Germans, because they've like slaughtered this town. So you get these really like interesting compositions of these German knights who have these large crosses on all of their costumes. Um, standing around over all these dead bodies and burned houses and such. And then you see, like, one of their leaders is this uh, priest character, and they all have these crosses everywhere. And then, like you mentioned, the German helmets all have, like, hands or, like, chicken feet. Or this one guy has, like, these giant horns. Um, and their soldiers have these really, like, menacing helmets that hide their faces. Like, they, the, the costume design in general, and especially for the uh, German characters. I mean, I don't actually know, but I'm guessing that there's no uh, relation to real to real life here. But it's really interesting just as like a piece of propaganda, like how Baroque and bizarre we can make like the evil Germans look. I was thinking while watching it that the Germans in this movie could give Darth Vader and the Imperial Army from Star Wars a run for their money as far yes. as the amount of menace that they can project just with like how they look. I mean, the scene you mentioned where they're in the city that they've defeated, they're literally throwing children into a giant fire. Yes, they're literally throwing babies into a bonfire. And it's funny you mentioned Star Wars because there's a like a priest character who plays an organ who wears black robes, who at one point 
I thought kind of looked like Emperor Palpatine. And uh, who knows? I mean, George Lucas is actually a huge film buff. We know, so that's probably not actually out of the, you know, out of the question that there was an influence there. One of the things I actually thought was most interesting about it actually suggested a lot of historical accuracy. And I don't know how much of all that plays into it. As you mentioned, is propaganda. It's made by atheistic regime. Uh, you know, there's a strong angle of like this religious crusade attacking and the Russians. We really don't see a lot of religion on their side. Probably right. would not have been accurate because part of the conflict is over. They can keep their Orthodox church or whether they have to become part of the Catholic church. Yeah, the Germans are explicitly like trying to bring them to the heel of Rome. That's what they say. And I think realistically, the Russians would have been praying and using their own religious imagery of the, the Orthodox imagery. And that's probably a big inaccuracy or a big deviation from history. But what I was going to say sure. that I thought was very actually historically accurate and actually a lot more so than movies you see now is how the battle actually plays out. Now, there is a lot of it looks like people running around and sort of chaotic and they're kind of flail, flailing about a bit. I feel like it's actually more accurate because in the movies you often see these mass battles and it turns into these individual little duels where people get their cool little moments and they can swirl around and jump on things when we don't know for sure, obviously, but I feel like it's pretty plausible that a mass battle would feature a lot of flailing around and a lot of people falling over and climbing on things and yeah. a lot more chaos and disorganization. So I actually appreciated that. And I also felt the way Nevsky explained what they were doing and the way the battle actually plays out, the rhythm of it actually makes sense. So if I were to... Yeah, I would agree with that totally. I think that the... Um, I mean, this is a famous battle sequence, too. This is, like, considered one of the greatest battle sequences and one of the greatest sequences in film history, the famous Battle on the Ice. But, yeah, it, it is interesting in the sense that it shows you... I mean, it goes on for, like, a half hour. Like, it's it's not just, like, quick, over, and done with. This battle sequence um, goes on for a half hour, yes, and Alexander Nevsky explains the tactics they're going to use, where basically they draw in the German attack and then hit them on the flanks. And you can see, while watching it, you know, the film shows, like, when the two sides meet, that it, it's just, like, this total melee of chaos. But then you can also see, I mean, they show you the various, like, twists and turns in the battle, you know, and, the, and it kind of like the ebb and flow of it because, you know, they attack the flanks, then the Germans pull back and set up a shield wall, right, and then the Russians try to breach the shield wall in a counterattack, and they get pushed back several times. And, of course, there are, like, little moments of heroism like you're talking about. There are, like, you know, moments where one guy will, like, go into beast mode, because his friend got killed and, like, killed 100 Germans. I mean, not 100, Right, and but... Alexander Nevsky, I believe, personally duels one of the German knights. Yes, I, I think that's, like, the pivotal moment in the battle is he, like, they break through the shield wall and he duels the this German guy with this giant helmet with these two huge horns on it. But the battle on the ice, I mean, it also has, um, and I was going to talk about this, too, the lead-up to that battle has some really interesting uh, compositions where... Eisenstein frames the army at the very bottom of the screen. And then above that, you have this huge sky. And while watching it, I was struck by how well that replicates what it would be like for the Russians to watch the German army come in because you have these like little dots on the horizon approaching. And then, of course, as they get closer, 
they get bigger and bigger. And then you can, can contrast that with the Russians who are setting up their defenses on this like rocky outpost. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and the music too, we should mention, the uh, music is a very famous by uh, Sergei Prokofiev, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. But I feel like at a couple points, the um, of course, the main theme for the film does have these like really cheeseball patriotic lyrics. But the, I, th I thought the music itself was actually pretty effective in um, stirring up the uh, tension in both the uh, earlier scenes and then in the battle scene as well. Yeah, that battle is really the the heart of the movie. Obviously, I don't think that would be a um, in any way controversial. That's probably, I assume, I didn't research how the film is historiographically, you know, talked about. Um, just the fact, yeah, I don't know if I could just go back to the battle again, I guess. There's more I could talk about there. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, like, from reading about medieval battles and from this time period, you have the Germans start with a cavalry charge. Okay, that makes a lot of sense from their position. They want to break the Russian lines and make them run away. Uh, battles from this time period, your goal is to get the other side to run away because usually once they start running, then you can just massacre them. Okay. So the opening makes sense. They're trying to cavalry charge. The Russians have picked a spot that they think they can defend. So basically at that point, it's a duel between the cavalry charge and the defenders, if the Germans can get them to break, you know, then they'll be able to surround them and also take the baggage train. And we see them, we see Nevsky is holding his forces in reserve for the counterattack. So they have to resist the cavalry charge and then they use the reserves for a counterattack. So I feel like I th from everything I know, like historically, this is a very, very realistic tactic to have. And then the Germans have their reserve as well, right? They're holding their reserve back at the camp. So I guess we would say the tactical blunder of the Germans in the battle is they actually hold their reserve too long. Yeah, because at that point, it kind of seems like it's too late. And that breaking that you mentioned, the film does like famously have the sequence where the um, Germans are like their army is routed and they're retreating and they fall through the ice in the lake. It's how these battles from this time period would end is once you get the other side to flee and a lot of times the death of a leader would be the reason to cause this. Now, I'm guessing the actual historical battle did not have a duel to the death with a leader, but it, yeah. was very, it was very realistic that if a leader dies, the other side, they get spooked, and then they start to run away. And then, yeah, in this time period, once one side starts to run away, it turns into a massacre, usually. Because yeah. they lose all formation, they lose order. Uh, you can just wipe them out and take their baggage train. And we see that they capture the German camp. Uh, they're just kind of ransacking the place. So, the, like, the way that all plays out, I mean, I... From everything I know of historical battles, like, this is very, it's actually very accurate. And I feel like in modern movies, when we see a battle scene, it just is a lot of people fighting, and then someone yells, like, fight harder, and then someone else yells, like, fight even harder, and then at some point, like, one side wins, and it doesn't really explain why. Yeah. No, I, um, you know, I had seen this film before, but not many years, so I didn't really remember much about it. But I do feel like saying it actually does do a really interesting and effective way of depicting the ebb and flow of the battle. Minus the duel between Nevsky and the German knight, which is a little flourish. The scenes after the duel where it shows the wives wandering around the battlefield, like looking for their dead husbands. Did any of that stuff work for you? Yeah, I thought that was good. I mean, it pretty much all worked. And actually, that makes me think of the other part that I thought was a good little realistic thing was the end where they mention um, ransoming people. 
Right. Which was also a very common thing from that time period. If you captured high-ranking knight, you would want to ransom them back to their home country. So again, that was realistic. I think that's the only part in the movie where we see Russian religious figures is at the very end, when the sort of Orthodox priests come out in their in their victory parade. So I'm I, I'm curious why they bring the priests in at the end if they're basically hidden the Russian religion angle the whole movie. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. They um maybe that I know just from the reading that I've done about this, Eisenstein was attempting to get more realism into it. Like apparently Alexander Nevsky actually did sign some sort of non-aggression pact with the Mongols. Yeah, in mentioning the the, the uh, Russian Orthodox priest, that makes me think of the fact that from the reading I have done of this film, um, Eisenstein was uh, battling sort of to put more historical accuracy into it because apparently in real life, Alexander Nevsky had signed some sort of non-aggression deal with the Mongols, and he wanted to put that in the film, which would mirror the treaty that had been signed between the Soviet Union and the Japanese Empire. Like in this film, I think it's pretty clear the Mongols are supposed to represent the Japanese Empire, even though they were around at that time, obviously, too. So I wonder if maybe the scene that you mentioned was an instance of the realism that Eisenstein liked sort of poking through. Right, like... If you're going for realism, you would have Russian Orthodox religious stuff probably throughout the whole movie, and maybe they finally caved and said, okay, you can stick it in at the end. Yeah, at the, you know, victory where they're, the, the peasants, they let the, um, the, the German foot soldiers, uh, let, they, like, spare them, and then they ransom the knights, and then, like, the three ringleaders of the Germans, I believe the peasants just, like, mob them and, like, beat them to death. Spoiler. The Germans lose in this Soviet propaganda film. I would say there's, I think there's an interesting thing you could talk about the role of women in this movie, which I did not expect to be an interesting angle, but we actually see a, a woman putting armor on and fighting in the battle. Yeah, I thought that was interesting in the sense that they didn't really know this at the time, but Russian women, just by virtue of having their country invaded and large swaths of it occupied by the German army, uh, were actually forced to participate in the war effort against um, the Germans. So I thought that was actually kind of a really, an oddly prescient touch. I don't know how much credit we want to give them because one of the peasants does tell a story about a rabbit raping a fox. Oh, and yeah. And everyone laughs hy hysterically. Yeah. So I don't want to give them too much credit, but it was interesting. They have the uh, a couple, I think there's two women that we see putting armor on and fighting in the battle. Yeah, well, clearly they wanted to you know, in the film, put forth the idea that women are, can kill Germans, too. So your original question was, does the Soviet propaganda film from the 1930s hold up? And I think it definitely does. Not everyone, I think, does the black and white movie thing, because obviously movies are paced at a much almost frenetic pace compared to something from uh, 1936. But yeah, I think it holds up. I think there's a lot to recommend about it. You mentioned the framing. There's shots in this movie where I feel like you could just put it up on the wall, like you could just frame it and put it on the wall. Yeah, I mean, Eisenstein, during his silent days, was known mainly for his innovative editing techniques, and by this time, that kind of uh, artistry had sort of fallen out of political favor, so he, I think, was forced to try to express himself more through shot composition and keep the editing, and the editing is good, especially like during the battle sequence, but it's more conventional like narrative editing. And I think he is more expressing himself here through, like I said, like through the shot compositions. 
and through things like the costume designs and the music. So Alexander Nevsky is a Soviet propaganda film and it considered a classic piece of cinema. I think we would both agree that it uh, definitely lives up to its reputation. Yes, I would agree with that. As Walter Sobchak would say, Germans, man, nothing changes. I am waiting for the big budget epic where the Germans save the day at the end. Have the Germans ever saved the day? I don't know. More research is needed for that, I guess. There's got to be a story somewhere where the Germans, where the save, Germans the save the day. Yeah. My recommendation for this episode is Global Frequency by Warren Ellis, which is a different take on the same sort of concept as the sci-fi team. It came out a little bit after Planetary. There's a lot of similarities. We kind of talked about in Planetary how there's a consistent visual style. And if you wanted to have a totally different, you would have a different artist every issue. So that's what Global Frequency does. So there's a lot more variety between stories. There's actually a lot of rotating cast. So there's characters that are only in certain issues. So it's taking the concept and pushing it more in the direction of individualized stories versus less of an overall story. But Global Frequency is very interesting. It has, If you were to come out today, people would describe it as like a hacktivist crowdsource network or something. But I don't know if those are really words that were even used when it came out. So he's actually looking a little bit ahead technology-wise. So it's actually seamless with stuff we talk about now. But having come out in 2002, I believe, it's actually... The, some of the like some of the science fiction parts of it are not science fiction anymore. So that would be my recommendation. Global Frequency by Warren Ellis. Every issue has a different artist. So what is the uh, what is the premise of Global Frequency? I feel like I've I've heard heard of this. I have not read it myself. So the the premise of the Global Frequency is that there's a team of people, but there's a thousand people I think on the team. So it's a thousand people all over the world. Everyone has a different skill set, and they have a special phone. And when you call them on their global frequency phone, then you're like activating them. And then they come in to accomplish some kind of mission for the frequency, which is like the organization. So that's why I'd say it's like they're hacktivists because they do things outside of the law and they get into computers and find secret things that are happening, but they're not part of the government. And then it's crowdsourced because there's a thousand and one or a thousand people on it. And they're all random average people with different types of skill sets. So it'll be like this mission we're going to call the guy who's good at engineering and the guy who's good at computers and we're going to give them a mission to go to this country and do something. That sounds interesting. Like you said, that sounds very born endless. Like he's always seems like on his like science fiction stories, he's always trying to like do that thing where you read what's in the news and then try to think of like, what could be the next thing? Cause that, and that, and then that definitely sounds like a case where real life sort of like eclipsed it. Cause now that doesn't sound all that doesn't sound like science fiction, you know? Right, because in this, it peep, they call them and they're like, oh, is that your frequency phone? Because it's like a special kind of phone, right? Whereas now you would just have... Like, like a burner like a, phone. Yeah, so it's actually... Yeah, so like some of the things in it that make it seem more science fiction are less blandish, I think, now than when it came out. So it did come out, what, almost 15 years ago? So I think that shows that Warren Ellis is very good at sort of extrapolating current technology out a little bit. My... um recommendation is kind of going off of Alexander Nevsky as another uh, Soviet film, another sort of what you might either accurately but perhaps derisively call a communist propaganda film. It is a movie called Outskirts from 1931. The director is Boris Barnett. And I've watched a lot of Soviet films, and, and this is maybe an odd compliment to give, but I feel like 
Outskirts might be the most effective communist propaganda film that I've seen. And the reason for that is because the movie is set during um, World War I, and it actually presents a part of the communist ideology, which I think is pretty uh, universal, and I think which is pretty like true, which is yet the importance of solidarity, like class solidarity across national lines. So the story involves a, like I said, it's set during World War One, and the story involves a German soldier who's being held in a POW camp in Russia, and he begins a romance with a local uh, Russian girl. And so in all of the local Russians are like, oh, like he's a German, like he's evil, you know, the Germans are horrible, but the film itself kind of presents the idea that like, no, actually like people are people across borders and like these national lines that you know, make us hate other people from around the globe are just like this invented fictitious thing that we shouldn't like actually put all this like weight into. And it, it has a number of other like subplots that kind of expound on that theme as well. And among other stuff, it's a really odd film too. Like in the beginning, it has a talking horse. So it's sort of like a weird comedy drama it kind of and that theme too is one that you would obviously see is not something that they would really do, you know, during World War II or whatever, right? So it's kind of like this odd moment in time where, you know, is able to put forth this idea that would kind of fall out of fashion. And it's interesting too because in the film you see it's set during World War One, so you see Kerensky's government, and then you see the, the how Kerensky's government didn't end the war, and then it kind of makes you be like, yeah, like I could see you know, it kind of makes you cheer for the Bolsheviks in the sense that they are going to end the war. And, you know, World War One is obviously just this like unstoppable horror show that would never end. So you can kind of like get, you know, it effectively like makes you root for the Bolsheviks in a way that most Soviet propaganda films really don't because they're so like clumsy about it. But in this one, you're like, yeah, end the war. Like, that makes sense. We should end World War One. So the film is called Outskirts. It's You can actually rent it online. I think it's on YouTube as well. And there are a couple different DVDs, but it is really good. I would recommend it. That's our show. Thank you for listening. You can find us on the web at armyofcrime.com. I am on Twitter. My username is at armyofcrime. And my co-host is at Dustin4444. If you enjoyed the show at all, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher program you prefer. Stay alive. Cats are delightful. That's true.